Heavenly Father, thank You, Lord, for the Christmas season. For once every year we get the opportunity to remember our Savior came as a child and entered the world as You promised He would. And though our Lord is on our hearts and minds every day, Father, for we live to Him now and soon to see Him face to face, it's still, Father, a wonderful thing to be able to remember what it meant that He would lower Himself, taking himself, taking the form of man and coming into this world. And Lord, I know Christmas brings so many traditions and music and food and family and so many things we've decided are important to us at this time of year. And many of these things, Father, are blessings from you to increase the joy of those who follow you. But still, let none of those things, Father, overshadow the real truth and purpose in this time of year. Let us have the heart, Father, to remind others around us of the same in love and in kindness and in joy that even as we uh, celebrate our very precious traditions that we wouldn't fail to celebrate our precious Lord. And uh, Father, this morning we are looking at what your Lord, what our Lord did, what your son did in his coming to earth and in his sacrifice and in his service as our high priest. I ask, Father, that these things would be made all the more real to us as we study them, all the more important to us, tangible and meaningful, so that we would not consider them merely theology, but they would be, uh, Father, the very source of our life, the very reason, Father, we call ourselves Christian, and that you would help us to explain again what we learned today to others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in chapter 9 of Hebrews. I want to introduce it with a reminder of something that many of us know from years past, some of us from recent past. Remember in high school when you're preparing to enter into college and there's that rite of passage that you have to go through called standardized testing. Some of you are living through that right now. I just noticed everybody went, I could see it. It was the SAT or the ACT or whatever you had to take. Remember those tests? Everyone knows them real well. Well, there was one question on those tests. I'm told they don't do this anymore. I'm told this question is no longer on the test. But there was that one type of question that a lot of kids really disliked because it was such a puzzle. That was the analogy question. You remember that one? It would be like medicine is to illness like education is to an Aggie. Or something like that. If you have to think about it, it's because you're an Aggie. But anyway, or, you know, like... Medicine is to illness as luncheon meat is to, and then there'd be like all these questions. You're like, I have no clue what that's even trying to get to. Well, the writer of Hebrews this morning is in the middle of his own analogy of sorts. And knowing that is really important to understanding what he's teaching. And at a core level, at the central point of everything he's talking about, it's actually very simple. He's comparing the old with the new. An old covenant to a new covenant. The old ways in which Israel was called upon to worship in their old covenant compared to the new ways that we are now called to worship. And in each of the comparisons between old and new, he's using an analogy. And that analogy helps us understand his point. His point is that the new always beats the old hands down. But it's in the purpose of having first the old and then the new that his real point is being made. He's going to say that because the new covenant is better by God's design, it was intended to replace the old and all the elements of the old are being replaced by new and better elements in this new covenant. And that the old served a temporary purpose that was then to give way to the new once the new arrived. And so far we've looked at in chapters seven and eight, the priesthood of Jesus as a starting point that he wasn't qualified to be an Aaronic priest under the law. He couldn't have done it even if he had tried. 
So when the Bible says he serves as our high priest today, it must mean that he's doing it under a new covenant in a different priestly order, something other than the Levitical order. And we studied that, of course, already. And the writer proceeded to show us that Jesus was a priest in the order of Melchizedek. That's an order that predated the Levitical order and outlasts the Levitical order as the appearance of Melchizedek in Genesis 14 proved and Psalms 95 proved. So we could say that Levi, here's your analogy, don't shudder too strongly when I say this, Levi is to the covenant of law as Jesus is to the covenant of grace. See how that works? See, I only got one question right on the test. So there was a new and better covenant planned all the time, all along for God's people. When God was ready to reveal that new and better covenant, then the old one is intended to disappear. The writer ended with chapter 8 in saying that. You remember at the very end of 8 last week, he said in verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. So that's where we've been, right? This analogy is building and we still have more of it to do. So now in chapters 9 and 10, which we'll cover in the next few weeks, he has two more analogies to make on this larger conversation of old giving way to the new. First, in chapter 9 this morning, the writer examines the place of worship. That is the tabernacle, or we could say the temple. That is the place or the center of Jewish religious observance under the law. It was a product of the Old Covenant. In fact, it was stipulated in the Old Covenant. They were given the rules on how to build it. It was in the law itself that God told the people, make me a tabernacle, a place where I will dwell among men. So, friends, if a new covenant has arrived in Christ, then what tabernacle are we concerned with today? And then in chapter 10, which we'll get to in a little while, the writer examines the activities that take place in that building, namely the sacrificial system. So chapter 9, the building. Chapter 10, what goes on in the building? In both cases, an analogy. What happened then versus what happens now? Where we worship then versus where we worship now? And so on. Now, in all of these discussions, the things of the old have not been thrown away. They've not been dismissed. It's not as though they were senseless. In fact, they haven't been thrown away at all. They have been replaced. That's a different thing. It's different to replace something than it is to do away with something. Now, in both cases, the old is gone. But the difference is that there's something in its place under the new. It's not as though there's just nothingness now. And so in all cases, we need to understand we had a priest, we have a priest. We had a tabernacle, we have a tabernacle. We had a sacrificial system, we have a sacrifice. We need to understand what has come to replace the old and not do what some are prone to do, which is to say because the old is gone, we worry of none of those things anymore. Well, we, we don't worry about the old, but we concern ourselves with what has replaced those things. So let's look at the first verse of chapter 9. We're going to see clearly the outline that I just gave you. Look what he says in verse 1 of chapter 9. The writer says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. You can see him introducing this analogy. He says, look, the old and the new had areas of regulation for worship and an earthly sanctuary. The old and the new both have these two elements. Those are your topics for chapters 9 and 10. Now, as he chooses to address them, he reverses the order. So in chapter 9, verse 1, he talked first about regulations of worship 
And secondly, earthly sanctuary. Well, now he's going to discuss those two topics in reverse order. He starts with the sanctuary. And he's going to explain the analogy of the tabernacle. And then later the analogy of worship. Now, I'm going to cover these two chapters perhaps a little differently than I might have in my usual style or in my usual approach. And what I mean by that is I'm not going to spend a lot of time examining the details of the tabernacle or the details of the sacrificial system as they picture Christ. And if anyone's ever done a study of the tabernacle or of the sacrificial system or of the law, then you know already what I'm talking about. The fact that so many of the elements within these systems picture Christ. The showbread pictures Christ. The altar of incense pictures Christ. The lampstand pictures Christ. The Holy of Holies pictures Christ. And so on and so on and so on. We could spend weeks on that. And, and don't you know I'm capable of doing that. But I don't want to do that under this case. Because the writer himself is not examining those details in this letter. He's looking beyond the detail. And he's looking at the broader comparison of the analogy. So I want to stay where he stays. If you're interested in knowing more of the things that I just said I'm not going to cover, I want to encourage your interest, but I would direct you to the Exodus study that is available online. For in that study, I take the time to do those comparisons and to bring out as much as I can of the pictures of Christ in the law and in the tabernacle. So today and for the next several weeks, let's focus on the larger point. And that point is, in writing to the church, this writer is trying to teach us concerning the new covenant, and its superiority, and that's our focus here as well. Understanding how the new matters to us now is partly based on understanding how the old was set up in the first place. And to do that, I need to give you just a little background on the old, so that we're all starting from exactly the same perspective concerning the old. There are those in the faith, in the Christian faith, who have been taught along the way in their life uh, about the law and about the old covenant in some unhelpful ways. And by that I mean putting too much emphasis on the law in our present day Christian practice or trying to mix the law of the old with the covenant of the new in some kind of fashion so that the two are thought to be continually working together even for us today. That would be violating what Jesus said in the Gospels when he says you do not put new wine into old wineskins. These are not possible to mix. They have a purpose. One leads us to the other. One replaces the other. So here's the background I think we all need to have. The background is, how did the old arrive and why did the old exist? And it doesn't take long to explain that, at least not in summary. First, the Bible teaches that the old covenant was established between God and a certain nation of people. The law and all that it established is given to us in the books of Genesis to Deuteronomy, but it's principally in two of those five books, Exodus and Leviticus. And in those two books, you have this generational agreement in the nation of Israel. The law is not between Gentiles and God. It is not between any other group of people except Israel and God. That's where it was made. That's how it was formed. It's generational, we're told, in Deuteronomy 29. It says that everyone who is in Israel will be bound to this covenant, not just those who were alive in the day when Moses formed the covenant, but everyone who comes after them. They are all in this covenant forever. It's a generational covenant for the nation of Israel. Furthermore, it is a conditional covenant, or we would say a parody covenant, 
which means that it spelled out certain blessings that God was prepared to give Israel in this covenant, but those blessings were contingent on Israel's performance. They had to live up to the standards of the covenant. Specifically, they had to keep the whole of the law perfectly forever, down to every last man, woman, and child. If the nation did that, well, then they could get the blessings of the covenant. But you and I can both tell that was an impossible standard. And sure enough, within a very short period of time, they failed at it and they've continued to fail at it. So you have this covenant offering blessing, which no one in the nation of Israel could possibly stand up to and meet and therefore achieve those blessings. Well, over the course of many centuries, Israel drifted away from the practice of the law as God intended. Increasingly, they became corrupt by, because of the surrounding nations and because of their own evil kings. They distorted and they perverted the rituals of the law. And eventually the Lord judged the nation for their disobedience under the covenant. And he sent them out of the land for a certain amount of time. Now, God knew all of this was coming when he gave the law. He knew they couldn't keep the terms. He knew that they were going to be disobedient. He knew that they were going to become corrupt. And so in the law itself, God provided a sacrificial system. This system was designed to compensate for the sin that would happen under the agreement itself. So this sacrificial system would allow Israel to continue in the Lord's blessings in this covenant, despite the fact that they could not keep the law which they were required to keep as a nation. So by performing these sacrificial rituals under the law in the tabernacle, the nation could remain in good standing with the Lord in this covenant. Now, let's be clear about one more point. That sacrificial system was never intended to address the need of eternal life for any specific individual Jew. It wasn't even trying to address that. It had nothing to do with that. Under the old covenant, an individual's salvation came just as it does today. They had to believe in God's promised provision of a Messiah. By faith alone, they were being saved individually. The old covenant had nothing to do with individual salvation. Its purpose was to form a nation under God, in a covenant, in an agreement, with certain terms. But because they couldn't meet the terms, God assigns to them a sacrificial system that allows them to continually make up for their sins under the covenant, and in so doing, hold the covenant together. Remain in fellowship to the Lord. We're going to come back to a discussion of the sacrificial system in chapter 10 when we look at that. But for now, I want you to understand the old was given to form a nation in an agreement with God. Through that agreement, he would offer them blessing. But because they couldn't keep the terms of the covenant, he also gave them a sacrificial system in which they could be continually atoning for the continual sin of a nation of people in that covenant. That's the background. Now, let's look at the writer's first analogy between the tabernacle of the old, the place where they were told to perform all this sacrifice, and a heavenly tabernacle, one that is now the center for our sacrifice. Verses 2 through 7, the writer says, For there was a tabernacle prepared, the outer one, in which were the lampstand and the table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the holy of holies having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden jar holding the manna and Aaron's rod which budded and the tables of the covenant. 
And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. But of these things we cannot speak in detail. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. All right, let's remember where we are. We're in the first part of an analogy. This is about setting up the premise, setting up the rule. The rule is that there was something for some reason. Specifically, note what the writer is emphasizing here. In verses 2 through 7, he's basically done a quick overview of the design of the tabernacle. This tent-like building that was set up in the desert for Israel to worship in. It's a very small building. In fact, it's about half the size of this room. That's what Israel was told to go construct for the worship system. And look what he's emphasizing as he describes it. The furniture inside... But more than that, really, it's the design of the chambers or the rooms that made up this larger tabernacle. The room with the most glory in it, the room that you really wanted to see if you were a Jew living you know, centuries ago under these days. If you could have picked the one place you would want to be able to go see, you would have said, I want to go into the Holy of Holies just once. I just want to see what's inside that room. Look what he says is in there. The ark is in there. The altar of incense was there. You have the things that are in the ark, the manna, the budding rod, the tables of the covenant. Those are the Ten Commandments we talk about. It was the most glorious place on earth. And when God's glory was resident in the tabernacle, he would appear, the glory of God would literally appear on the top of the ark. That was the only light source in the room. And it lit up the whole of the Holy of Holies. If you want a sense of just how rare it would have been for someone to see this place, look what the writer himself says in verse 5. As he finishes describing the Holy of Holies, he says, but of these things, oh, we cannot speak in detail. In other words, he says, we really don't have any clue what it looked like in there because we couldn't go in. Because we couldn't go in. This room was closed off by a veil, the second veil, he calls it. It's second because there was an outer one to get you into the building proper, like the front door. Then you came in and then there was his second veil. And that second veil walled off the Holy of Holies. You could not go in there. You and I, if we were Jews, common everyday Jews, we couldn't go in there. In fact, we could have been Levitical priests and we still couldn't go in there. The only one who could ever walk through that second veil was the man who was holding the office of high priest. And you only had one day of the year when a high priest could enter in on the Day of Atonement. And even when he did enter in, the writer says, he had to first get some blood, the blood of an animal that had been sacrificed. And using that blood, he would first atone for his own sin. He would have to acknowledge, I'm not worthy to go in there. Let me atone for my own sin. Then he would go in with the blood and he would shake it on top of the mercy seat. And in doing so, he'd atone for the sins of the nation under the law. Again, keeping them in fellowship with God. Now, outside that room, there was another room. The outer room, or as he calls it, the outer room, or we would call it the holy place. He says in verse 2, this is the holy place. Now, this outer room, some people could go into. The Levitical priests, when they were serving in the tabernacle, could come into this room and do their service and go out. They did this continually, he says. They went in there continually to perform the sacrifice. 
The sacrifice was required by law, similarly, because of the sins of the people. It was daily, and the nation could remain in the covenant because of these daily sacrifices. But here again, if you weren't a priest, you never saw that chamber. What is it that the two chambers start to suggest to us? They're decorated. They have these unique and specific furnishings that all picture Christ in different ways. They're glorious. They're made of gold. They shine in the candlelight of the lamps or of the glory of God and the Holy of Holies. And yet all of this glory and and beauty is prepared so that only a handful of people could ever see it. The vast majority of people who were served by these things had no clue what was going on inside and would never see it. They would be born, live their entire life, and die and never see the inside of that tent. All they knew was that in there, somewhere, things happened that kept us in fellowship with God. And the writer is pointing all this out, again, the first half of the analogy, to suggest that all of these rules and restrictions were set up under the law, under the old covenant, in order to tell a story. To tell an analogy. And the story was about Christ, but more specifically about his work, which he would one day do as high priest, as part of a new and better covenant. Friends, you and I have not seen the new and better tabernacle, have we? No man has seen it yet, apart from Christ. So in some sense, you could say we're a lot like Israel was back in the day. We know we have a priest, a high priest. We know he has performed sacrificial service on our behalf and done so in a heavenly tabernacle. But we have no idea what it looks like. In fact, we haven't even seen the outside of it, much less the inside of it. We just know that he's done it. And the writer is saying, you know, the old was given as an analogy, as a picture of what would be done later in the new. So let's look at the second half of the analogy. Now the writer says in verses 8 through 14, here is the analogy that was intended by what was given in the first. Verse 8, he says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed while the outer tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, And not through the blood of bulls and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, well, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? So let's explain the second half of the analogy. Reminder, first half of the analogy is the law is to the earthly tabernacle as the new covenant is to the heavenly tabernacle, which requires now that we make detailed comparisons between these two in order to fully understand the analogy. We know the writer has moved to explaining the analogy because of the way he began in verse 8. He says the Holy Spirit is signifying something. In other words, when Moses relayed the instructions of the tabernacle to the nation of Israel, when he delivered the law to them 
And he said, by the way, the law includes we have to build this uh, really funky looking building down on earth. This is part of the rules. That was actually inspired teaching. God was giving Moses that teaching for the nation. It was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And it was instruction that would picture what was coming in the heavenly realm. By the way, this is a reminder that even though we don't follow the law, it's all still useful for instruction because it's all inspired. All right, so let's answer the question. What was the Holy Spirit teaching us about the old tabernacle versus the new? First, the writer says, when you look at the way God designed the old, he put a bunch of chambers in it and he made those chambers increasingly difficult to penetrate so that very few people could ever see them. And he was doing this to make a sign for us about what had not yet been revealed. For as long as the earthly tabernacle stood on earth, it was like a billboard. What was that billboard saying? Well, it was telling Israel, your sin is a barrier. Because of your sin, you can't get to God. That was the billboard. That's the message of having an earthly tabernacle. Now, what's the solution that's being implied? Well, the solution is you need a high priest. You need a high priest. You need someone to go in there for you. You need someone to do the work for you. It stood as a sign. More than that, though, the writer says it stood for the present time. What he's saying is this, that as it stood, it was a sign to Israel that the way to God has not yet been revealed. This is what you get for now. This is your temporary accommodation. You get this ugly building on earth. It was ugly from the outside. It was made to look that way. It's a sign. I have this building on earth under the old covenant. It restricts you from access to the Holy of Holies. You can't go in. As long as this is standing, it's an accommodation. It's a temporary measure. And in that way, it's telling you the real way to the real tabernacle through the real Messiah, through your real high priest, has not yet been revealed. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. Keep waiting. Generation after generation of Israel had that sign. Now, the solution they're waiting for, of course, is the Messiah and the new covenant that the Messiah brings. And the design of that old tabernacle reinforced the idea that until a solution for sin is made through a Messiah, you're blocked off from God. And this is your temporary accommodation. Now, in verses 9 and 10, the writer highlights the way the sacrifice took place in the tabernacle to illustrate this point further. He says, all the sacrifices and washings and other rituals which happened inside that old building could not cleanse your conscience. This is such an important aspect to the distinction between the old and the new. If you were a worshiper in Israel and you were participating in the old covenant and in the law that it required that you participate in, and you went before the priest with your sacrifice and you gave them your goat or your lamb, or your bull, depending on what was required, and they sacrificed it for you, and you took the blood with the priest, and that blood was applied, etc., you had performed a limited, temporary atonement. How did you know it was temporary? How come you didn't walk away from that moment and say to yourself, well, good, I've made my sacrifice, I'm now right with God, all is good in the world, and I'm done with this. How did you know that that wasn't true? Because you knew the law said the next time you mess up, you come back here and do this again. The law didn't say, do the sacrifice once and you're good for life. The sacrifice was only good to cover what had just happened. The next time your sin pops up again, which by the way, it's going to do that, you're right back where you started. The knowledge that the law required continual sacrifice was itself proof to the worshiper that you are not truly cleansed. 
You've still got the same problem, generating the same mistakes, leading to the same need for sacrifice, and it's never going to end. So when you stood there and you sacrificed that bull, you felt some measure of relief. You had sort of done what you were called to do, but you did not walk away from that moment feeling cleansed from sin. You couldn't feel that way. The law reminded you you weren't done with this. Those washings, the food restrictions, the dietary requirements, all the things that came with the law, they were there to serve the body, the writer says. They protected the physical body and they restored physical fellowship in the nation, but they didn't deal with the underlying issue of sin. So you still felt guilt, you still had a debt, and you didn't know what to do except to come back and do what the law required over and over and over again. But by God's grace, you can be made righteous through Christ's sacrifice on your behalf. That's where things change. So in verses 11 through 14, the writer finishes his analogy by describing the greater tabernacle of the new covenant. What has been addressed, what has been fixed by what Christ does through his new and better covenant? Well, first, the writer says, look, the tabernacle that God is working in, the one where he truly performs the sacrifice that saves you, that tabernacle is not even found on earth. It's not made by human hands. It's not of this creation. It was built by God. We learned earlier in the letter that as you and I sit here today, this morning, there is a real tabernacle present, but it's just not on earth. It's in the heavenly realm. It's in God's throne room. It exists in heaven right now. That building, and no one has a clue what it looks like, just as in the old day, no one knew what the inside of the tabernacle looked like. We don't know what it looks like. We just know it exists. We know in Revelation it will descend in the new heavens and new earth and occupy a place on this new earth when it's built. We also know that Christ entered into it, and we know that the one we had on earth under Israel's law was a small-scale replica of something God has prepared for us in heaven. Now, in the case of the law, the Aaronic priest would enter with a basin of blood taken from the sacrifice of a bull. And as I said earlier, as he entered into the Holy of Holies, he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat above the ark to atone for the sins of Israel. Look what the writer says about this new tabernacle, though. In a very intriguing comment, he says, verse 11, when Christ appeared as a high priest, look what it says. He entered into the more perfect, the greater tabernacle. And then it says, look, in verse 12, not through the blood of animals, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place. Now, friends, he's clearly drawing on the analogy of what happens in the earthly one, right? We know what was done there. You had a literal man holding literal blood, walking into a literal room and sprinkling it. The writer, by analogy, seems to be telling us that Jesus did exactly the same thing. He entered a real physical place. We know the tabernacle in heaven is real. That's not just metaphor. We know it truly exists. It's described as coming down in Revelation chapter 21, actually. Well, if the building is real, and Christ is certainly real, then why would we not assume that the other pieces are real as well? That the analogy wouldn't just fit all the way? So what I'm saying is, it appears as though Jesus walked into that heavenly tabernacle with his own blood following the crucifixion and applied real blood to a real tabernacle in heaven to perform the true final once for all atonement that the earthly one has always just been picturing. But if Jesus did do this, if the analogy is intended to be fully authentic from front to back, as the writer seems to be saying, well, then when did Jesus do this? 
When do we fit this into the timeline of his death and resurrection and ascension? Well, some believe that you get this answer from John's gospel. Late in John's gospel, in chapter 20, the resurrected Lord has come out of the tomb and he's met by the women. You remember Mary Magdalene specifically. And Mary is so thrilled, as you might expect, to see her Lord resurrected and alive again. She embraces him. You remember what he says to her? Verse 16, Jesus said to her, Mary, she turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, stop clinging to me, for I have not yet ascended to the father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my father and your father and my God and your God. He wants Mary to tell the other disciples then and there that I am about to ascend. Now, there is an ascension that we often think of when we think of Jesus ascending. It's the one in Acts chapter one in which Jesus ascends for the final time. And we have yet to see him return since then. That ascension took place a long time after many weeks after his death. He is telling Mary here, however, in John 20, go tell my brethren that I ascend, he says to my father. The sense of this, when we put together this in chapter nine of Hebrews, the sense of this is following his death and his resurrection. He immediately ascended to perform the atoning work of high priest in the heavenly tabernacle, for that is the finishing act of his sacrifice. That is the culminating act. Remember, in the case of the earthly sacrifice, there was the sacrifice of the bull at the altar in the courtyard where the animal was put to death, the blood collected in a basin. Then it was picked up by the high priest and it was carried inside the holy place. And then it went a step further into the Holy of Holies in order for it to be applied on the Day of Atonement. Well, all of that pictures what Christ did. He dies, he's resurrected, but there's still the atonement of the blood on the altar, which then took place. Following that, it would seem Jesus returned to perform the rest of his service in demonstrating the proof of his claims, appearing to the disciples, teaching yet further in many cases, only later to finally ascend, where then it says he is seated at the right hand of the Father. Which is important because in Eastern thinking, when someone is seated, it is an indication that they have completed their work. That's why it's said that slaves could never be seated while they were working. They had to stand when they were ever working at the table or in any other capacity. Because to be seated is a sign that you're finished with your work. And Jesus didn't take the seat of the right hand of the Father until after his ascension in Acts 1. None of this is definitive. I wouldn't be terribly disturbed if it turns out that all of this is somehow wrong in my understanding and I wouldn't fall on my sword on this. I'm not that dogmatic about it. But it does strike me in the language of chapter 9 that the writer by analogy is saying what was done has been done again. What was done in a limited form is now done in a once for all form. That the lesser has been fulfilled by the greater. There There seems to be that comparison being made, and I'm comfortable with it as I understand it at this point. So, like the SAT analogy, the work of the earthly high priest is a lesser example of the greater work of Jesus as he performed it in a heavenly tabernacle. His work in that later instance is greater because what the writer says in verses 13 and 14, the blood that he offered is so much greater than the blood of an animal. That's the key difference. In the case of the law, the earthly priests were commanded to take the blood of bulls and goats, but the blood of an animal is only sufficient to cleanse the body, the writer says in verse 13. In other words, when someone made a sacrificial death of an animal under the law, they were making a payment 
for their sins under the law. And the result of that payment was they could be restored into fellowship in Israel under the law. It was an earthly restoration. Because, friends, if a Jew did not do that, if a Jew neglected to take the animal and sacrifice, the law itself said they were to be cut off from Israel. They were excluded from being a part of Israel. So what the sacrifice achieved was restoring them to the society of Israel, allowing them to remain within Israel. Think of it like we think of today. If you are a criminal today and you are convicted in a court, we send you to prison, right? When you get out of prison, what has changed? You have paid your debt to society. You are restored to society. But has that time in jail taken away your sin? Did that time in jail take away your guilty conscience? Maybe for some, but generally speaking, no. It doesn't solve that problem. Its only purpose is to solve the ability to restore someone to citizenry in society. The law was doing exactly the same thing. Their law, their national law, was the law God gave them. And the sacrificial system performed that restoration. But the writer notes here that their conscience was not cleaned. They were still sinful. So in verse 14, he says, if the blood of a bull or goat could restore earthly fellowship, then the blood of Christ himself was a solution to reconciliation with God, to fellowship with God for two reasons. First, because it is a man who was being sacrificed. Friends, the death of an animal is not sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God against a human being for their sin. I want you to imagine another scenario. Imagine you had a debt that you owed to a bank. You took out a a loan and you owe them the money. I want you to imagine if you showed up at the bank one day and you wanted to pay off your debt with Monopoly money. You went to the closet, you pulled the game out of the closet, you pulled the money out of the box, you went to the bank and said, it's the same amount, look, it says it right here on on the bills, take this money. Why would they not accept that? Because it's not what they're owed. You didn't borrow Monopoly money. When you walked into the bank and said, I want a loan, if they had handed you Monopoly money, well, then you could have come back later and paid them back with Monopoly money. But they gave you real money, so that's what they're owed. It's the same idea. The Bible says that we owe God a debt for our sin. And the price of sin, according to Romans 6.23, is death. The wages of sin is death. So the debt someone owes God for sin is their own life. You can't show up with monopoly money, in other words. You can't show up with a bull or a goat and say, take this life instead of me because the one you owe is your own, not an animal's life. Only a human life can substitute for a human life. So the reason Jesus' blood is sufficient where animals could not be sufficient, number one, is because it's human blood. Secondly, though, his blood had the power to atone for your sin because his life was without Sin. You notice the writer says that his blood was without blemish. Verse 14. He offered himself without blemish to God. He lived a sinless life, never committing even one sin. And as a result, his death was undeserved. And therefore, it's available as a payment for you and I. Go back to my bank example very quickly. What if a person walked into the bank to pay off a debt and he had real money and he put the real money on the counter? He says, I'm here to pay off a loan. But in this case, this person had never taken a loan from that bank in their entire life. Now, the bank just got a bunch of money to repay a debt, but that person had no debt. What are they going to do with the money, assuming they were willing to keep it? Well, they'd look at their roles and they say, well, somebody else on here needs to get their debt paid off. That's how it works, right? We have money. We've got to account for it. 
It goes against this debt over here. This poor guy over here who had no clue it was coming and now he's suddenly without a debt. I guess this is the new thing. They walk into Target or some store and they pay off all of the layaway plans that are currently in the store. Have you heard about this? Layaway angels. Never happens to me, but somehow it's happening in the world where people walk in, they have a lot of money, they want to do a nice thing, they pay off all the layaway balances that are currently on that store's rolls, doesn't matter who people are, and when those people show up to pay it off, they realize my debt's already been paid. What a perfect analogy of Christ and his death on the cross, right? So Christ's death and his blood could go into the heavenly realm and do something that no one else's blood could do for you and I because it's human blood, so God accepts it in your place. And it's sinless blood, so it had no debt of its own to pay. It's free to be used for someone else. That's what made his death and his sacrifice so much better. So the writer says, if we accept that payment, his blood is capable not only of covering our sin, but it does something that no other blood could ever do. It clears our conscience. Doing works to please God, whether they were works under the law or any other work, never clears your conscience. It just makes you feel good for a little while. But the payment Christ made on our behalf lifts the weight of condemnation that sits on the sinner because knowing it was done once and it's good forever assures us that no matter what sins are in our life, past, present, or future, have all been paid by that one payment. If there's only going to be one, then it makes sense that one's all that's needed. And if one is all that's needed, those who accept it are accepting a payment that is perpetually in effect for them. You cannot rack up enough debt, the Bible says, to exceed the payment that was made. Now, that never becomes license to go out and do more sin. The Bible makes that clear as well. But what it does do is cleanse your conscience. You'll feel conviction for sin. That's a healthy thing. But you'll never feel condemnation as a believer. The analogy is there was a tabernacle whose purpose was to testify that the right way, the new and better way had not yet been revealed. So for now, keep waiting and watching this building from the outside looking in. But when Christ was revealed, when his death took place and when he went to heaven with his blood and applied it on the tabernacle, that building on earth was soon to disappear. And in fact, in A.D. 70, it did. And it stayed disappeared. So that we would be clear in understanding that the new and better has come and we don't need the old any longer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the analogies of Scripture, the pictures, the shadows that help us understand what you are doing and have done for us. But Father, I pray that we would take what we've learned and use it in some helpful way to the purpose of the church and to our time on earth, that you would allow us, Father, to be useful to you and spreading the word of what we've learned. Let the gospel, Father, be on our lips as we approach Christmas this week and the story of Christ's blood and his death. Even as we celebrate his birth, let us teach people as well about how that ended and why it was made necessary and how they can participate in that payment by their faith in Christ. Let us be good ambassadors, Father, to carry that message forward. And give us a heart, Father, to remember Christmas as it was intended with joy with a clear conscience for those who place their faith and trust in Jesus. And, Father, most of all, with an anticipation that just as he came once as a child, he will come again as a king. And we look forward to seeing that one day soon, Lord. 
may our Christmas, Father, be uh, an opportunity to uh, remember those things as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.